This is going to be the key TTP of the future. We have got to be able to visualize the battle space better. How do we see in five domains? And I'm saying, no, you have to be thinking about what would happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, we could be at war with Russia in Europe. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I will be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking once again with Colonel Retired John Antel. John served 30 years in the U.S. Army commanding tank and cavalry units, and outside of the Army, he's become a successful author and military consultant, teaching leadership values to individuals and groups. He'll be talking to us today about command post-survivability, new methods of warfare, and thinking differently to survive in the changing operational environment. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. John, thanks for coming back again and talking with us. For those in our audience who aren't familiar with you, can you introduce yourself again and give us a little background on why you're here? Will do. My name is John Antel, Colonel U.S. Army retired. I am a soldier for life and also someone who thinks carefully about what future war will look like. I'm very concerned that our military needs to pay attention to all of the things that are happening right now in the world. And one of the things you can do is think differently. That's great stuff, John. And, and one of the things you've been paying attention to lately is command post survivability. How do we keep our CPs up and running in these sanctuaries free from disruption? We can put CPs in sanctuaries. We did so in World War I. I mean, the Chateau generals who were away from the front were connected by wire. They were basically CPs in sanctuary, but they didn't provide mission command to the commanders at the front, you know, the ability to, to enhance that. So putting a, a CP, a command post in sanctuary out of, out of the range of the enemy's weapons, or at least out of the danger of the enemy's weapons, is um, something that can be done with the right amount of communications capabilities. But the real question for us is, is how do we execute mission command in the 21st century, and how do we enhance that to the point that they can operate where they need to operate, not far away, but where they need to operate and get all that information in a way that allows them to survive. Is what's going on in Europe right now important to this topic? That is, are the potential lessons learned from the Russia-Ukraine war relevant? And if so, how imminent do you think the impending threat is? These lessons, I believe, are critical for us to understand because I believe the clocks are striking 13. You know, totalitarianism is on the march around the world, and we are probably going to be in a major fight sooner than we think. And we have got to start thinking about what would happen if we did have that happen. Now, imagine as if right now it is July 1941, and you know for a fact with certainty that the U.S. will be attacked on December 7th, 1941. What would you do right now, armed with this foresight, to prepare your troops or your units for battle? What would you do differently? And when I do this, when I ask this of people, many of them write several things down, and then I say, what would you do differently? And they say, well, I would do this differently, and I would do this differently, and I, of course, would emphasize that. And then I say, why aren't you doing it now? How much more do we need before we end up in a situation where we're seeing all of the indicators fall in line? There's a war in Europe going on, a war in Europe in the 21st century. 
there is a resurgent China that is saying they want to attack Taiwan and that they will attack us. Now, we can always say they're just bluffing, but if you think back what happened in December 7th, 1941, and you start looking back, why weren't we ready? I don't want someday some people to say the same thing about us. That's a great point, John. I, I think that's kind of the basis for a lot of the work we're doing, you know, trying to inform the Army in order to avoid operational surprise as best we can. So what's different now? How can we keep up and, and what do we need to look out for? The methods of warfare are changing. Well-trained, equipped, and expertly led soldiers are our asymmetric advantage. And to maintain that advantage, we must think, study, dialogue, and reflect to keep up with the pace of change. Now, these are the top warfighting disruptors that I've been talking about for the last year. The transparent battle space, everything can be seen now by satellites all the way down, including UAVs of all types, aircraft, and all sorts of systems. You can find anything if you want. And you know this because we're seeing this in the Russo-Ukrainian war, and we certainly saw it during the Second Nagorno-Karabakh war. The first strike advantage is the next warfighting disruptor, and that is something we really have to pay attention to. In almost every situation that I can think of, every warfighting situation, we're not going to attack a peer competitor first. If that's the case and they attack us, we have to receive. How will we be able to survive that first strike? And one of the things that's truly valuable that the Chinese have learned, I believe, from their study of the Russo-Ukrainian war so far, is that the Russians didn't mishandle the first strike. The Russians did not understand the character of the Russo-Ukrainian war. They, they did not understand that the Ukrainians would fight the way they are fighting. And they thought they would come in with uh, open arms and that they would be greeted as cousins. That wasn't what happened. So their first strike wasn't as powerful and devastating as it could have been. The Chinese have learned from that. When the Chinese attack Taiwan, and I say when, when the Chinese attack Taiwan, their first strike will be devastating. If they learn the correct lessons from the Russo-Ukrainian war, they will strike with everything they have in a massive strike in order to win. The next warfighting disruptor is the tempo of war. Everything is happening faster now. This particularly impacts how we execute command, how we execute and implement mission command, and how we're able to fight that fight. We have to be able to have an increasingly fast OODA loop. You know, we have to be able to observe, orient, you know, we have to be able to decide and act faster than our enemies. And the tempo of war is increasing. Top attack, we've talked about that in the past. Top attack is the preferred method of warfare now. The main emphasis in the past was on the front glacis of the, of the tank. How thick could it be so the enemy couldn't penetrate it? Well, when that was too hard to do, they started blowing us up from the bottom. And now the IEDs fly, so they will atop, attack us from the top and they will top attack us with all sorts of systems that are precision guided that will either disable or destroy you. Fully autonomous, weapon systems are moving more and more toward full autonomy. That means that they will be able to attack you and they will not be easy to be jammed or to be knocked out of the sky with, with non-kinetic means. Fully autonomous systems won't even need GPS in some cases. So this is the future of, of warfare and the future of of military systems is to gain more and more autonomy. The kill web. Right now, we have a kill chain. One of the top warfighting disruptors of the 21st century will be the transition from the kill chain, which is human-centric, to a kill web, which is AI-enabled. 
And this AI-enabled kill web will be so powerful for the, for the nation, the military that is able to create it, that if they are attacking someone that doesn't have an AI-enabled kill web, it will look as if their opponent is standing still because they will be able to make strikes at machine speeds and they will be able to integrate all of their systems. Now, they don't have to do this for the entire period of, of the conflict, just for the critical periods of the conflict, like the first strike. So an AI-enabled kill web is something the Chinese are looking very strongly at and how they will do it. Visualize the battle space is the next top warfighting disruptor, number seven. And this is really important for us because this is how we command, how we visualize the battle space. And now in all five domains, plus the information arena and also the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So five plus those two, how we visualize that battle space is crucial and it's getting harder and harder to visualize that battle space. So we need enhanced systems to help mission command do this. And until we get those systems and until we get a better cognitive intellectual understanding of how to visualize the battle space, this will become a crucial issue for the 21st century. Decision dominance. Decision dominance is now the new term in the US military about the information war how we use information more to get an information advantage to create decision dominance. If you wanna see how this was done correctly, you study the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War. In the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, the Azerbaijanis actually gained decision dominance by being able to overwhelm uh, the Armenians, not only in the information war arena so that the people of Armenia were, were convinced that they were losing the war, but they also were able to destroy the command and control of the uh, Armenian army, the Azerbaijanis were able to do, destroy the command and control of the, of the Armenian army to such a point that the Armenian army was totally paralyzed. And therefore the Azerbaijanis gained a tremendous advantage. The reason that this small war, the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War is so important is that everything that happened in the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War in 2020, from September 27th to 10 November, 2020, is playing out in the Russo-Ukrainian war at a different scale. Now, my purpose is to investigate the Army's ability to execute enhanced mission command while assessing the changing methods of warfare. And this involves understanding how critically vulnerable our command post systems are. Our problem is, is that in the modern battle space, our current command posts, our CPs, cannot mask. They're very difficult to defend, and they will not survive. Our current systems will not survive. Without our command posts, how will we execute mission command? What will happen if we lose all of our command posts or many of our critical command posts? The concept of mission command is supposed to be able to cover that, but are we ready for this? Now, in the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, the Azerbaijanis were able to use their loitering munitions and their UCAVs together in small combined arms teams. This is the future of combined arms. Imagine a combined arms teams that consists of loitering munitions, unmanned combat aerial vehicles, UAVs of all type that are providing ISR information, long range precision fires, fires from aircraft, and whatever other fires you can direct onto the battle space, ATGMs for instance, and using all of those in a, in a combined arms kind of way to knock out the enemy's key systems. Key systems like air defense, electronic warfare, command and control, artillery, and then you get down to destroying their armor, destroying their armored vehicles, destroying their wheeled vehicles, destroying their troops. In the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, 
the Azerbaijanis were absolutely amazing at being able to knock out and disrupt the Armenian command and control. Now, they had a lot of help from Turkey during that war, but their command posts, the Armenian command posts that were initially in tents, as the Armenians were setting up their command posts and they operated out of tents, just in many cases as we do, they did not survive. And systems loitering munitions such as the Harrop, an Israeli-made loitering munition, which can loiter for six hours over the battle space, and the new version can loiter up to 12 hours over the battle space, is basically a 155 millimeter artillery shell with wings and a precision guidance system. So it can loiter for six hours, look for its target. And once it sees a target that fits its parameters, it sends a message back to the controller and the controller then says, hit the target or return. And if the controller tells the system to return, it can come back and land on a designated runway and be reused. And if it tells it to attack, it immediately goes into a dive, terminal velocity, and attacks that target, a 155 millimeter artillery shell with pinpoint accuracy. That's what the Armenians had to suffer through. And in many cases, they're using, in the Russo-Ukrainian war, these are be using piecemeal and in small penny packets, little uh, loading munition attacks here, UCAV munition attacks here, those kind of things. They haven't been masked yet. Someday they will be masked. And when the, when the practitioners understand that massing these systems in combined arms packets to create a persistent precision strike zone over the battle space for a period of time will give you dominance. This will become one of the important tactics and techniques and procedures of future warfare. The Russia-Ukrainian war, as you know, has offered many opportunities to see how Russian and Ukrainian command posts have not been able to survive in this environment. It is very difficult for them to survive they have had to do many things that initially, particularly the Russians, you know, were not really trained to do. At Kherson, for instance, after the Russians took over the, the air base at Kherson, the Ukrainians were able to use U.S. intelligence and also uh, information from uh, commercial satellites to find out exactly where the Russian command posts and aircraft were, were on the Kherson air base. And they were able to strike those with precision. And they used long-range artillery fires and unmanned combat aerial vehicles to destroy those. And in a picture of the Kyrgyzstan air base that was taken by Maxar satellites, you can actually see where every one of the Russian aircraft were positioned, their helicopters, and they're just black smudges because they've been destroyed by the Ukrainian long-range precision fires assisted by unmanned combat aerial vehicles that were calling for those fires and, and, uh, and laser designating for those fires. Plus the Russian command posts that were in buildings were destroyed largely because the Russians would line up their vehicles or their tents and their generators next to their command posts and put wires in there so that they could get all their systems to work. So it was very easy for the Ukrainians to see where the command post was and therefore target it and destroy it. Now, one of the key elements of the changing methods of warfare is the introduction and use of loitering munitions. Because they are persistent, because they can fly over a battle space for a period of time, depending on what kind of loitering munition it is, and because they provide precision fires, they put a great impact on being able to hunt CPs, command posts, and mobile command groups. High value targets like command posts are one of the primary targets of these systems. And when you start looking at both the 
Second, you're going to Karabakh war and the uh, war in Ukraine right now. You will see that both sides are hunting command posts. And when they can knock them out, it is quite a victory. And most of the time, those are hit with either long-range precision fires or a combination of loitering munitions and unmanned combat aerial vehicles. So what will happen when an enemy uses UCAVs and loitering munitions in mass, a sort of unmanned aerial vehicle combined arms package to create this persistent precision fire strike zone? This is going to be the key TTP of the future. Now, to solve some of this problem, our command posts need to understand the concept of masking. Across our army, across our military, we need to understand and embrace masking. Masking is not even a military term right now, but it needs to be. Masking is the full spectrum, multi-domain effort to deceive enemy sensors and disrupt enemy targeting. Full spectrum, multi-domain effort to deceive and disrupt, deceive their sensors and disrupt their targeting. We've got to start thinking this way. We don't have to be invisible, although invisibility would be great. We have to deceive their sensors. If their sensors can't see us because they're given so many false positives that they don't know what's the real target from a fake target, or if they can't see us because they're blanked out, either through some other means that we take away their electrons, but we deceive their sensors and then disrupt their targeting so that their targeting system, their long-range precision fires, can't be effective. We have effectively masked our forces. This is a key to the future of warfare. You know the old saying, amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. But in the 21st century, masters of the art of war understand tactics, understand logistics, and understand masking. All warfare is based on deception. Masking needs to become one of our doctrinal terms. It needs to become a critical thought process in everything we do. Right now, we can be seen in many different ways. We have a challenge masking on the battle space of today. We have basically five challenges that we have to solve. First, we have to be able to hide in the optical arena. The United States Army should be the best at camouflage in the world. And we should figure out how to camouflage our systems and our mobile systems in such a way that we can deny the enemy the optical spectrum. Now, we're not anywhere near the masters of camouflage. To be able to do that takes three things. It takes leadership, it takes discipline, and it takes good kit. In other words, the leadership is needed to enforce the discipline. The discipline needs to be trained and the TTP needs to be something we train from basic training on so that camouflage is always done. And then lastly, we need new camouflage systems that will help us hide masks in multiple arenas, in multiple areas. The second arena that we really have to, to be able to mask in is thermal. We have very few, if any, systems in our entire inventory that were ever designed with thermal dampening in mind. Our systems blare out heat. An M1 tank with its, with its very powerful engine looks very bright in a thermal site in the battle space. We have got to figure out ways to reduce our thermal signature. Now, when we fight opponents, they find ways to give us false positive. They set up fires or smudge pots or some other things so that we look at those and we think those are targets and we may shoot at them. How many times do we do that in our training? We need to change our thinking first, and then we need to also work on getting the kit necessary, the equipment necessary to get it done. Electronic, we really need to learn how to mask in. 
We are an army that swims in a sea of electrons. Everything we do, we have an electronic system with us. That electronic system can give us away. There are images that show, for instance, brigade combat teams at the National Training Center, where pictures show the electronic image of the brigade combat team. This electronic image is very red and very bright in areas where there's lots of radio frequency and a lot of electronic uh, emissions. It's a little bit greener where there's just a few. If you were the enemy commander, you would know with this kind of a picture exactly where to send your long range precision fires. And in the 21st century, we have to assume they will see us. We have to assume all the time that we can be seen because the systems right now will in fact find us. And we have got to be able to, to mask against this threat. The electronic area is extremely difficult. For instance, we can learn a lot from the, from the Navy submarine service on how to hide. We need to look at that and see how it applies to land warfare. One of our challenges is, is that we cannot go to electronic silence. Imagine if we could turn off all of our electronic systems for one, two, three hours prior to an operation or at a specific period of time so that it would be very difficult for them to find us. How could we do that? And how, in fact, would we know even if we had them all turned off? Because the leakage from some of our systems also gives away a signature. This is something we really need to pay attention to. The fourth area that we need to mask in is acoustic. Sound can now be used by unmanned aerial vehicles to triangulate locations, and you can find where the guns are shooting from, and you'll be able to target those systems just on their sound. Almost all of us have been in a situation where we've been in a, a blackout situation where at the National Training Center or some other training event, we cannot uh, put on any white light. We're trying to find the tactical operations center, the talk. So we take off our helmets and we listen for the sound of the generators. You know, that sound will be picked up by UAVs flying at night. They will find us and they will kill us with our acoustic signature. And then lastly, quantum. Now, quantum is very exquisite right now, but the Chinese have developed quantum sensors that can identify some of our stealth aircraft and some of our stealth systems. And this is an arena that will continue to grow as quantum computing advances. So the most important, again, the big five, optical one, thermal two, electronic three, acoustic four, and then quantum, we need to be aware of all of these and we need to take action now, particularly in the optical, thermal, and electronic and acoustic arenas. The quantum one we need to be aware of and we need to think about that for the future. Now, our command posts right now are indefensible and they are easy to find. When we do our exercises and we train as we fight, right? We train as we fight. When we do our exercises where we deploy talks for training, for simulations, we very seldom dig anything in. Our camouflage is rudimentary. We never camouflage, for instance, our, our generators. Uh, we don't dig the generators in. And if you start looking at all these and you see pictures of how our talks are set up and how our command posts are set up, it is easy to see that they are command posts and they will be targeted and they will be killed. And almost in every case, we're operating out of tent extensions or things that will not give us any protection. So we have got to think differently. And if you look at any picture of a command post from an unmanned aerial vehicle or from a satellite uh, or from an aircraft, a helicopter, you can follow the tracks into the uh, headquarters. You can follow the vehicles that are nearby. You can see how it's all arranged. We have got to think differently. There are no places now 
across the entire MDO framework, from basically the United States all the way to the forward edge of the battlefield and beyond, there are no places that are not under the guns of the enemy. The Chinese and the Russians and others will have weapons that will be able to hit us across that whole spectrum, particularly in the area of the close battle area and the support area. They will be able to hit those areas. So the brigade support areas are under the guns and farther back all the way to the core headquarters, all of this is under the guns. And the enemy long range precision fires or an attack by loading munitions or uh, unmanned combat aerial vehicles and other systems, aircraft systems and even ATGMs will get to those systems and destroy ours. We have got to start masking and we've got to figure out how to deploy differently. In the Russo-Ukrainian war, in an article in Forbes in April of 2022, it was announced that 31 Russian command posts have been destroyed since the start of the war in Ukraine. This number has increased since that number was announced. And at least 10 or more Russian generals are confirmed killed in action. Imagine if we had lost in the United States Army 31 battalion brigade or higher command posts in a 90-day period. How would that disrupt our ability to execute mission command? So hunting command posts, a high-value target like a command post, is something that affects combat immensely on the battlefield in the Russo-Ukrainian war. Right now, what we're seeing in Ukraine is the ability of the Ukrainians and oftentimes the ability of the Russians with pinpoint accuracy to destroy command posts and wipe out the opposing forces ability to command and control operations. And if we do not learn from this lesson and learn how to mask and make our CPs, our command posts more survivable, then we will pay the same kind of price the next time we have to fight a peer competitor. So John, what's our specific issue then? Why are our CPs so susceptible and what can we do about it? Are there any solutions? Our headquarters right now have too many screens, operate out of too many tents, and have too many people collected together. Our challenge is, is that we have been operating this way for a long time. It's an effective way to operate if, in fact, they can survive. But the situation is changing. We can no longer survive with this setup. The enemy will find us, and they will destroy us. We have got to ditch the screens. We have basically got to go from macro to micro. We've got to think differently. Some of the command post solutions that have been offered out there are interesting, and they offer you a capability that enhances what we have now, but it is just incremental change upon what we're doing. You'll see some command post systems that basically are a little more armored, but they're expando vans. They work on trucks. These things will help us in some ways, but they are not survivable and they are not defendable. Now, some of the things that need to be done immediately what I call the imperatives for command post survival are these, and there are more, and you'll think of many more, but these are some that I think will offer food for thought. One, we need to develop the tactics, techniques, and procedures to mask, again, deceive and disrupt the enemy from destroying our command posts. And you can do that in a red team exercise. Sit down with your command post setup, no matter what echelon it is, battalion decor, and say, how would we mask our signature how would we mask in all the five areas that we just discussed, the optical, the thermal, the electronic, the acoustic? How would we be able to do that? And think about the quantum. How would we be able to mask in those arenas? How would we try to do that and develop your own TTP? 
Second, we need to operate command posts from distributed and dispersed cells. We can no longer put everybody together and allow them to just sit together with all these screens in front of them and then give information to someone face-to-face. This is going to be a recipe for disaster in, in the next combat. We need to operate command on the move. We've been talking about how we can do this. We've been doing it to some degree, but we need to make it routine. We need to make it the way to do it. We need to be able to move frequently. One of the ways that we can survive better is to be a harder target to hit. We need to reevaluate some of the things that uh, have already been developed, like the command posts of the future and those kind of ideas. And we need to look at those and how we would use them in distributed operations with the command posts connected, but not in the same place, connected by communications, either wire or uh, millimeter wave or microwave or laser comms or any of the new kind of communications that we can use. Starlink, for instance, is giving us some great capabilities. So we need to look at those things and see how we can, how those systems can help us mask our operations. We need to operate these distributed command posts inside cities and towns. We operate too often our command posts out from in open fields. This is crazy. It gives us very little protection. We've got to figure out how to mask our signature by being inside a city and being inside a town. The more that you can get the noise of the city or the town to add to the clutter, the more false positives that you can provide, the harder it will be for the enemy to target you and find you. But you should always be thinking, how will the enemy target my CP? What will they see? And one of the things that you can do is that over all of your training, you can have an unmanned aerial vehicle flying above taking video. We should be doing this in all of our training today. Top attack, the use of UAS of all types, and long-range precision fires by the enemy is right now what's happening. If we don't start training with the idea of what is what do we look like from the top and start doing this in every training session that we have across the spectrum of our training, then we're missing out on an important thing that we can use for after-action reviews and so that we can develop TTP to survive. Now, we need to determine how to link distributed and dispersed command posts to make them very hard to detect. We either need to figure out how to lay cable, we can do fiber optic cable or all sorts of other things, or we need to figure out how to develop the right directed antenna systems so that we can communicate in a more secure and a um, system that will be uh, self-adjusting and will be able to keep us in communications when we need to be in comms. So multiple displaced and distributed systems are needed. And we also need to think about our antennas the same way. So when you put an antenna right outside your headquarters, you're just giving away your headquarters. That antenna needs to be far away from your headquarters as far as you can possibly get it. And you need multiple antennas. So we need to get much better also at mission command. In the US Army, mission command is our command philosophy, but how many people truly understand mission command? If you ask anyone this simple question, it's the acid test. Tell me what mission command is in your own words in two to three sentences. You have five minutes and see what they do and see if their answer is is clear, if their answer makes sense. And if they can do that, that's good. But if you can't define something, then you don't understand it. All understanding starts with definition. So we have to be able to define it in our own words, and we have to be able to visualize it in our mind, and then we have to do it all the time. Do we execute mission command all the time in both garrison and in training? 
you know, is this our truly our command philosophy? We need to get better at it. Also, we need to intellectualize what an enhanced mission command system would look like. What does it take to use new systems that are more micro rather than macro to enhance mission command? And then we need to develop and deploy those future enhanced mission command systems as rapidly as possible. We're always trying to absorb and learn what we can from any and all available and relevant sources. Are there any specific recent examples that illustrate this idea in the real world? Now, there's some case studies that all of you should be aware of that are going on right now uh, that, that can be excellent points of dialogue for leader development and for getting you to think about how your command posts can survive better uh, in the current battle space. The first one that is a lesson learned from Ukraine in 2014. The attack of a battalion in Zelenopilia in Ukraine by the Russians is a great example of how the Russians were able to use unmanned aerial systems for ISR, for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, and then use the information gained from those systems to launch long-range precision fires to completely obliterate the command post of a battalion and most of the battalion systems. This battle happened in June of 2014, and you can get information on it to study it. Studying that fight is a worthy case study. And since then, there have been many others. There have been an attack in uh, of the 49th Combined Arms Army, the Russian uh, forces in Kherson in April. There was an attack on a Ukrainian CP near Dnepo in June. There was an attack on a Russian CP in Izium in June. There were attacks on several Russian CPs and ammo dumps in July at Chernovavkia Airport near Kherson in Ukraine. So these issues, these different fights are happening almost every week. And taking them and finding open source information about them and studying them and then saying, what can we learn from them is something we need to be doing. Now, our inability to visualize the battle space is a crucial warfighting function for multi-domain operations. We have got to be able to visualize the battle space better. How do we see in five domains? How do we see the impacts of the important things, the most important things to a commander in land, air, sea, space, and cyber? And then also understand the information war that's going on to gain information dominance and the electromagnetic spectrum. Being able to see all of that would give our commanders much better situation awareness. Right now, it is very difficult to do that. And they don't need to know everything about all those systems. For instance, a brigade commander may not need to know anything at all about space during his operation, other than the fact that any system that is enabling him is in fact in range or in the right uh, area and is actually working for him. Because there may be times where there are space assets that won't be available that will be critical to an operation, depending on what that operation is. So what, what needs to happen is the most important information needs to come to the top to the commander so that the commander can make decisions in time and increase that OODA loop. And to do that, we need a better way to visualize the battle space. So, you know, the question you must ask is how will you visualize the battle space in all five domains? As a commander, how will you do that? And during the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War, the Armenians tried to visualize the battle space in much of the same way that our command posts are set up. They got their, their, their best staff officers together. They got all their information coming in from many digital sources. They were all together in a tent, and they were destroyed by the Azerbaijanis. Command posts and tents were located and destroyed. We can't keep doing this because our peer competitors 
they will see these relatively immobile command posts and they will attack them as high value targets. They will spend a lot of energy to find them and they will spend whatever it takes to destroy them. And again, 31 plus command posts on the Russian side have been destroyed since the Ukrainian war started. It's probably now around 40. So when you start talking about the destruction of 40 battalion, brigade, or higher headquarters, command posts, imagine what that does to the ability of a unit of an army to fight. Our command posts have to change. They are impossible to mask, and they're extremely difficult to defend. And we need to act immediately, and we start that by changing our thinking. Everything starts by thinking first. So we have to execute mission command differently in the battle space. We can't keep doing what we're doing with our command posts. We need to adapt, improvise, and overcome rapidly. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, John. And I wanted to ask you now about the technology side of this. What pieces of tech could really enable this idea and help it be successful? Now, one of the things that the U.S. Army has purchased in the last few years is the IVIS. And the IVIS is a system that is being used right now with the infantry to give them the capability to link a squad together and see more and have better situation awareness. But here's a thought experiment for you. Imagine if we took the IVIS, which at the guts of it is a HoloLens, a Microsoft HoloLens, and we took that Microsoft HoloLens and we maximized it for command and control, and we used it to make a commander's interface for mission command. We, in fact, gave the commander the ability to use augmented reality to see all the screens he needs to see whenever he needs to see them. And then we distribute all that information with good comm links, but we don't have to put everyone together. This will allow us to distribute things and will give us an interface for mission command. Now we could use other methods, but we've already bought these. So the point is, is why not connect the dots rather than get a new system, a whole new program going? Why don't we just take the program that we have and develop it in a new way? Now, if the Air Force believes that an F-35 pilot has to have a special helmet in order to operate, Why can't we have a special interface for mission command for our commanders? And we need to think through this because we can distribute the staff officers and all the decision support folks in many different places to increase their survivability as long as we can get communications in by some way. So our challenge is is to first to figure out what that enhanced mission command system would be. How would we allow the commander to be able to see all those things? possibly through something like IVIS and the HoloLens, augmented reality. And if we do that, then how do we link those comms? And we can link those comms in many different ways. And we have to figure out how to have redundancy in those comms so that it can be several different methods and they can't be interrupted with. What role do you see AI or artificial intelligence playing? Basically, artificial intelligence assisting the commander in this enhanced mission command setup. The artificial intelligence, if you can imagine it sort of like a very powerful and very advanced Excel spreadsheet, you know, would give the commander the ability to see things immediately. Now, he wouldn't see an Excel spreadsheet. He would see images and he would see the images of the battle space in in a three dimensional map, you know, in his HoloLens. And he would be able to see the impacts of those things. And if it's AI enabled, it would also be able to predict certain outcomes based on possibilities and probabilities. And it would be able to give the commander course of action development rapidly in order to be able to make decisions. These are the kind of things that we will move to in the future. The question is, when do we start changing our thinking to start thinking this way? I call this Centaur Mission Command. It's just a term that came up in my mind because what's happening is, is that we've got to figure out 
how to create the coup d'oeil, the, the ability to see in the mind's eye, uh, the battle space in all these different dimensions. And it is very difficult to do with the complexity of today's warfare. So, John, what challenges lie ahead for us, the Army, the DOD here? How do we get to the end goal that you've been describing? Yeah, it all starts with the mind. It all starts with us thinking first. We need to think differently because we're going to be in a situation that's different. We need to think through what this future fight will look like, this fight that could happen next week. And I talk to leaders all the time, and they say, well, you know, we'll adapt, and we have this plan for 2030. And I'm saying, no, you have to be thinking about what would happen tomorrow. Tomorrow, we could be at war with Russia in Europe through a series of either planned or unplanned events. We could end up fighting in Europe. The Chinese know when they're going to attack Taiwan. They're the ones who are going to decide. And that could be this fall or that could be this next spring. Are we ready for that? Have we thought through that? You know, we know, for instance, there's going to be major global changes in the world because of the Russo-Ukrainian war. We can almost guarantee you there's going to be a famine this winter and next spring. What are we doing to prepare for that? Now, in our U.S. military, we have to think about it, but also as a nation. You know, if we're the breadbasket of the world, what could we do? There's all sorts of ways that we can apply foresight in order to try to solve problems. We got to think that through. Quite frankly, our, our challenge is to get, to get leaders to think and to develop foresight on the future of what the battle space will look like and how the fight will go. We have got to start thinking differently. And one of the ways we can learn to think differently is we can study in depth and particularly study case studies to, so you can learn in depth what happened. We can then discuss those and have a dialogue about them. And then we can do simple war games, whether they're just thought experiments or, or tabletop exercises or actual simulations, because we are the army that has the greatest amount of simulations on earth, right? So we should start using some of them. And we start saying, what would happen if this happened? What would happen if I tried this? How can I change my tactics, techniques, and procedures? How can I develop this in a way that will allow me to survive smarter and allow me to survive longer in this battle space? We've got to think about this now, because once we get there, if we use the old methods, they're going to hit us in the face with a sledgehammer, and it's going to look pretty bad, and we're going to have heavy casualties. In your opinion, does China make a move in the near future, 2025, 2026? Well, the Chinese said they would do it this year. They've been saying they're going to do it this year. And so November is, is a key uh, indicator, October, November. You'll see, you'll see what will happen if the Chinese start to move forces you know, toward the ports, and if uh, particularly rocket forces, because they have learned the Chinese, the People's Liberation Army is studying the Russo-Ukrainian war carefully. And they are looking at what they can learn in order to defeat Taiwan rapidly. And one of the things that they've learned, one of the things, just one, is that they must have a first strike that is so devastating that it causes the enemy to pause and possibly even tip and possibly even surrender. So that first strike cannot be what like Russia did to Ukraine, which was a piecemeal strike, which which was basically designed to, we don't want to destroy our cousins. We just want to knock them on the head and say we're coming. And that didn't work. John Antel, we want to thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again. You always have something important to teach the Army. We're so grateful for your time and for coming on the show. It's an honor. Thank you very much for letting me be on your show. Our show is always better for it, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. I hope I gave you enough food for thought there. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. 
I'd like to thank our guest, Colonel Retired John Antel, author, consultant, and leadership coach. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. 